Hey, I'm Jaguar Wright Johnson. But I was born Jacqueline Suzette Wright at a John F. Kennedy Hospital in Stratford. That's how you pronounce it, Stratford, New Jersey. Um, I'm a complicated person. <laughs> and from 1977 to now, it's been a hell of a ride. Your parents, um, give me some back, from what, what you know, uh, as far as the back history on your father, mm -hmm. also the back history on your mother. You can start with your mother if you choose. No, no, okay. we'll start with dad. Let's, Let's do the good news first. My father, God bless the dead, God rest his soul. Norman Lindsay Wright Sr. was uh, the middle child of nine born in Pitch, Georgia, to uh, David Wright Sr. and Georgia Ann Harden Wright, who were born slaves. Um, my grandfather was born in 1900. I think my grandmother was born in 1902. And they never liked each other. Um, they had nine, they had more than nine kids, but it was nine that survived the South. And um, my granddaddy was a song and dance man. Um, he was very popular on the Chitlin circuit, but he was married to a woman that he really didn't want to be with. And he was having a bunch of kids. I know my grandfather loved his family, but the truth is, is he loved his career more. Um, my Aunt Penny got sick with pneumonia. See, he used to open up for the Nicholas brothers, Fayette and, uh, um, ooh, ooh, what are the, oh, I'm trying to remember the Nicholas brothers' first names. The one that was married to Dorothy Dandridge and Fayette. And uh, my granddaddy used to open up for them on the Chitlin circuit, and he was so good that they guaranteed him a spot at the Cotton Club and um, Aunt Penny got sick with pneumonia and it was all hands on deck back then. A lot of people died from pneumonia um, back in the 40s, down south. You know, he's sharecropper, but that's what he did to support the family, kind of. Um, but yeah, Aunt Penny got sick and he was late to Memphis. He was supposed to have been meeting the Nicholas brothers in Memphis. And um, he got there, and they had already left, and he missed his uh, he missed his spot at the Cotton Club, and um, he never let nobody forget it. That incident happened in 1940, something. I was born in 1977, and I heard about it all the way up until he died. In uh, 1986, my granddaddy was 86 when he passed away, so it was 1986. He died that fall, my Uncle Jello. He died um, earlier that year, it broke his heart. My Uncle Jello was his favorite. My dad was the hardest working and the most dedicated, but my Uncle Jello was his favorite. He was junior, you know. Um, he always wanted to make it. <laughs> Was there, from your grandfather, 
to his kids, the nine other children, to your dad? Was there any other musical outside of your grandfather? Everyone in my family is talented. If my father hadn't had such a great disdain for the music industry because of what it did to his family, because of the way my grandfather... I mean, you got to understand, my grandfather, he would get upset and be like, fuck all of you, I can't stand you. I was supposed to have went to the Cotton Club and married Lena Horne and left all y'all niggas in the South. Um, when I say him and my grandmother didn't like each other, they just they didn't like each other. Uh, I remember one day I was over... This is when we was living on the family, you know, the family houses on Spencer Street. Aunt Susie house, my Aunt Susie Bright, who was an executive at Campbell Soup all the way up until she retired, um, had the corner house, you know. And granddaddy sat out on the porch and grandma, up until she passed away, you know, I was a little girl. I couldn't have been, I must have been like three years old and I was playing in the living room. And I never asked myself why my grandmother was tied to the chair um, in the living room. I, I still don't know why I didn't think anything strange of it. It was just grandma was in the chair and she was tied up and I just accepted it. Um, and then my cousin Shermaine, who's my Aunt Verley daughter, God rest her soul, God bless the dead. Um, my cousin Shermaine, she, she had been living in Philadelphia. She had left Atlantic City and moved to West Philly with her husband, Rodney Gary. And so Shermaine came over and she saw grandma tied up in the chair. And she said, grandma, why are you in the chair? And she said, yo, aunts are terrible people. They tied me in this chair. I've been stuck here in this chair. And grandma just put on this. She was in such distress. And I still didn't have no question about it. I just was playing in the living room on the floor by myself. And so my cousin Shemaine looked at my grandmother and said, Grandmother, do you want me to let you go? And she said, oh, please, grandbaby, just let me go. So my cousin Shemaine untied my grandmama. And when she did, that's when we realized why she was tied in the chair. Because uh, she pushed my cousin to the side and then she pulled the knife out from underneath the seat cushion and she ran up the stairs to go kill my granddaddy and she was trying to kick in the door and he was laughing at her, he had the dead bone. Bitch, I ain't letting you in. <laughs> I'm a kid, you nigga. You know, like my granddad would do weird shit. Like we'd be having grace and during grace, he'd be like, Lord, can you please take this ugly bitch home? <laughs> you know, like at the dinner table. So I, I mean, love has always been complicated in my family. Um, but they stayed married until they, till death do them part. My family don't really believe in divorce. So what was probably something that you may have seen your grandfather do to you, <coughs> to your grandmother, just on your father's side? Oh, just, you know, cuss out all the time and they would cuss each other out. You know, my grandma go to the bathroom and then granddaddy got to go to the bathroom because, you know, they was up in age and, you know, Granddaddy come, bitch, something cried up your ass and die, Jesus, die with it, die with it, you know. Or you hear them hacking and call, bitch, shut the fuck up, you know, that they just, they had an antagonistic relationship. Um, every now and then they try to kill each other and, you know. And as far as your father, um, what history My grandma was a tall woman, see. My grandma, she was like the shortest 
of her siblings, she was six foot two and a half. My granddaddy was five foot nine. So I think he had kind of like a Napoleon complex and just wasn't going to let my grandma think because she was taller than him and bigger than him. I think, you know, that was kind of it. Grandma wasn't no joke, but he would never go too far because my grandmother's brothers were really big. And like my Uncle Tiny, my Uncle Tiny, he was eight feet tall. So, you know, what the hell was my granddaddy going to do? Five foot nine, fucking around with Georgia Ann and tiny eight feet tall and come and pluck them, you know. So, I mean, it was a, it was a mutual love. Well, hate, hate. They loved the family. They just couldn't stand each other. And, uh, yeah. Where were they from, your grandfather? Pitch, Georgia. But you can't find it. It's not on the map anymore. Uh, the state of Georgia has disavowed all knowledge of the town. It was a lynch town, see. Um, white man came through, got offended that a black man could read better than him, and then he came back with his friends drunk, and they killed everybody, and my family escaped. Uh, made it to North Florida, and uh, nobody talk about it. And we know it happened, and then uh, Georgia swept it under the rug, and it's still hidden under underpasses and stuff. They have it barricaded off. It you unless you knew where it was, you drive right by it and. They ain't pay no reparations for anybody from Pitch, Georgia, either. They just swept it under the rug. So after that, my family went down to White Spring, Florida, and the last, the baby of the nine siblings, because there's only two left now, everybody else gone. And my auntie, and then there's my aunt Iola in Chicago. Um, but my auntie is still in the family town. I took my husband down there to go see her. I said, this is the closest you're going to get to me and my father because she looked just like my dad. And that was my dad's favorite, his baby sister. Oh, my God. My dad would, he would rip down the Empire State Building for, for teen. Um, but ain't, baby, ain't she great? She loved him. Oh, my God. The picture that they took at the IHOP when we went during the pandemic. She, we talked to her, what was about a month ago? Cause we gotta go down to Florida, go see her. And uh, she's, where my, where my man? She love her some Gerald. But uh, yeah, so the family settled in Florida and then you know, everybody started migrating north around the fifties. So your father, um, what was his, education level, what was his uh, occupation? He was forced to drop out of school in the third grade because he had to share crop. My granddaddy was so focused on his music career that he really didn't have time to work the land. And the truth is, is my granddaddy was a hustler. He'd rather go steal tires off the white people car and sell them um, than share crop. My daddy worked, so my dad had the mule and had the hoe and he tended to about 15 acres by himself at nine years old and um, my father was able to finish school uh, when he went into the military. Um, my father signed up, went into the Marine Corps. He lied. 
when he was 16. My grandma, you know, things weren't going as great as they were going with the land. There weren't enough hands working and my dad could only do but so much. So daddy went to the military so my grandma could get the check and um, make up for what wasn't happening with sharecropping. And, and uh, my father's life changed. What branch did he serve in? How much time did he serve? Marine Corps. Hoorah! Simplify. How yeah. much time did he serve? Um, about three years. He was a scout sniper sergeant. He was also a cook in the mess hall. And when the colonel came through and tasted the food, he said, uh, this food is too good for, show, for soldiers who cooked it. And they said, right. He said, who made the gravy? And he said, he said, right did it. And he said, report to my quarters at, um, what's three o'clock, 1500 hour. And he went there and then they changed his assignment. And that's how my dad got out of the field. And he spent the rest of his time in the service as the private chef for the colonel. Um, but I mean, the worst had already happened by then. My father was a black troop. People look at Tuskegee and they think that's the only company that happened to. It happened to all the black companies. My father's company, they did psychological warfare testing and training. They had him in an, in an insane asylum for 90 days, locked up, hypnosis, psychedelic drugs, had him doing all kinds of shit in there. My father didn't stop having the night terrors and blacking out until he was about 65. So when daddy had rough days, uh, it was just rough day. We would come home, the house would be torn to smithereens and we wouldn't know if we had been robbed or dad had a bad day. So we would have to sift through everything and see um, if anything was missing and if nothing was missing and we knew we didn't have to call the police and we just had to clean up and have everything done before dad got home. Uh, yeah. How did your father uh, meet your mother? What was that? It was a blind date. My mother was a single mother of a complicated child that had been molested by a family member. My sister was six. Lachelle, she was six. She ain't like my dad. And then my grandfather died nine months after, well, nine months before I was born. So my granddaddy had pretty much raised my sister as the man of the house. And she gave my dad a hard time. She gave the whole fucking family a hard time. You know? You say hard time. Uh, the bitch is crazy. Uh, are there things you remember as? A I remember everything. Can you elaborate on one of those times that you felt like this is just hard to deal with? One? Just one. Just, Nigga. <laughs> Don't make me pick. Because there's different levels. Nah, it's all fucked up. She started putting pillows over my face when I was a baby. And she started setting me up to get beat. And she would lie on me, have the neighborhood bullies come after me to fight me, to scare me. 
I'll never forget the first time she got me set up to get beat up. I was five years old in Lawnside, New Jersey. On We lived at 230 Haney Avenue. It was this fat bitch with a bad Jerry Crow named Rezzy. Therese. And everybody was so scared of her. Rez was about, Rezzy was about nine, I was five. And Rezzy was big and greasy. That Jericho shit was a mess. And uh, I think my sister had told her that I said I could beat her up. And so Rezzy came to my driveway. I was on my big wheel. And she stopped my big wheel while I was riding down the street. You think you can beat me up? I said, what you talking about? Leave me alone. I don't want to fight you. Well, you gonna fight me because your sister said. And I looked, and this bitch is standing at the door, and then she closed the door and locked the door. My sister, this bitch nine years fucking older than me. And my parents wasn't home. So I stood up, and I said, I don't want to fight you. And then she pushed me. And she pushed me back, and all the kids, ooh, you know, all the kids on the block. And I just remember what my dad said. It don't matter if you win. It don't matter if you lose. But you got to fight regardless. So I balled up my fists, my little teeny skinny little arms, closed my eyes, and I just started fucking swinging. And next thing I know, I heard the kids, oh! And I opened my eyes, and Rezzy got a bloody nose. And she sit there and started crying. And the neighborhood bully with the Jericho juice dripping ran up the street. And we became friends after that for a short while. We was decent. So as a reminder, you only have one other sibling? No. How many siblings do you have? I mean, does it really fucking matter? I'm the only child between my two parents. The rest of them niggas is half, and I really don't have much to do with them. How many have you? Well, there are biological children that my parents had before I was born, and then there were family members that were adopted and raised in the household. Everybody that I liked is dead. Everybody that I don't like is alive. For now, niggas is getting old. My brother Norman, he's been successful all of our lives. He don't like me because he don't like my mama. My sister Otelia don't like me because I ended up being our father's favorite. And Shelly just don't like me because I exist. And as long as I exist, I remind her how inferior she is as a human being, as a whole. Yeah. What makes you the favorite? I remember you stated that you were supposed Because to I worked the hardest, because I listened, because I was obedient, and I treasured every word that came out of my parents' mouths. I honored my mother and father. I followed the Ten Commandments. 
beating in my head. I used to have to recite them. The whole chapter, Exodus 20, the whole chapter, every Shabbos when the sun was coming in, I had to know it by heart. And if I did, if I messed up a word, I'd get my ass whipped. I listened. Were there whoopings in your family? Oh, my God, yeah. I preferred my dad because daddy was fast and quick justice. Mom liked to drag it out. You know, my mother unsupervised it. It wasn't good parenting. She would make us strip down naked and lay on our face down on the floor. And then she'd get a spray bottle and she'd spray us with water. And then she'd get the extension cord and beat the fuck out of us and laugh when we cried. I'll never forget, I had a Norman Bates moment. You remember the Bates Motel where he came in and he killed the bitch in the shower? My mama dumped me like that. I didn't wash the dishes, see. She ain't beat me like a normal person. She waited for me to get in the shower for my, sin, you know, for my skin to get soft. And she came in the bathroom and I seen her lurking and she pulled back the curtain and why, why, why? Started beating the fuck out of me in that shower. I guess that's part of the reason why I never had a problem with scars. I've always had them. A body without scars, I don't understand. Yeah, my mom was, uh, she used to do mean shit. Like my sister, if she wouldn't wash the dishes and left the, the and the stink start to get stinky, stinky and the rag and then the dirty food and all of that, my mom made my sister eat that shit out the drain. And then made her wash down four tablespoons of castor oil behind it. Like my mom, her cruelty, with some extra shit. She got off on it. So like my sister, my mom used to love canned peaches. Oh, that was her treat. And my sister would steal my mom peaches. And then she would fill it up with water to try to get the markup so my mom wouldn't realize that she got the peaches with mommy. She got too much water in it then one day. So my mom got an idea. And she poured out all the peach juice, and then she replaced it with castor oil, a whole bottle of castor oil. And this, my mom, y'all just gonna have to forgive me, this fucking bitch, my motherfucking mama, sitting there waiting for Shelly to go into the kitchen and sneak to get the peaches. I told Shelly, Fazi, I leave them peaches alone today. Mind your business. I'ma just put some water in it. She ain't gonna know, all right. I told you. See, I've been telling niggas shit my whole life and they don't fucking believe me. So Shelly get in there, she go get the scooping and then she tastes the castor and my mom say, oh no, bitch. Have a bowl. Eat them all. Oh my God, and then Shelly started shitting all over herself. It's terrible. My sister was always trifling. She stole my Jimmy Bean, my, my Jimmy Dean when they first came out with the microwave biscuit. I worked hard. 
I did my chores. I worked for the janitorial company starting at the age of five. I was up at 4.30 in the morning, working with my father at the buildings. We go have breakfast, and then I had to go home, get dressed, turn around, get my bags, make sure my homework was all the way done, go to fucking school. That was my childhood. Go to school, do the school thing, leave, go back to the janitorial service, clean more buildings. We did medical offices. We was a medical cleaning company. Global was the name of the company. So, see, I've always lived the LLC life. And then after that, and I had to come home, do my homework, have dinner, and then make it to bed and all of that. Only time I really had alone was with the radio at night. And I'd listen to uh, Power 99, and then the quiet store would come on, and I could go to sleep. And then 4.30 in the morning, do it all over again. Mm-hmm. So who were some of your parents' musical influences that people that they might have Oh, my mom loved everything from Motown and everything from Philly International. She a real Philly girl. My mom from down 23rd in Cambridge, she went to grads. She graduated from Kensington, but she went to grads. Um, it, she left when the boy had the gun in school, and he was in the locker next to her, so then she transferred to Kensington, which used to be all white, and now it's just all heroin addicts and shit. Yeah. Your father, um, did he have any musical like loves? Oh, my father played the guitar, he played the piano, and he sang better than anybody you ever heard in your life. When you hear me sing in my low register, that's actually how my father sound. So he not look up to anybody like having to do. Oh, my father loved my father's two favorites, Nat King Cole and Ray Charles. Huh? George on my mind, my dad's favorite song. So how would you describe your overall adolescence? Nobody sang like my dad. When he was singing Larry Graham, One in a Million. You know, when somebody died or when there was a wedding, or it was my dad that always sang at the family function. And I'll never forget my Aunt Verley say, Wayne, gone now. I guess you're going to have to sing it, Jackie. You're the only one that can do it. Did your parents want you to sing? Like, that Hell no, my father didn't want me nowhere near the industry. He hated the industry. He hated what it did to my grandfather and what it in turn did to the family. My father did everything that he could do. He wouldn't even let me go to art school. He wanted me to be a corporate litigator. <laughs> At what point did he know you had the talent to sing? At what point did he know? I didn't. I never did. I still don't. I just am what I am. I started writing when I was 11. I started singing in jazz quartets when I was 12 for extra money in the summertime when I wasn't babysitting. Music saved me. It was my escape. My life was fucking terrible. So that's what I was gonna ask as far as, I, I do want you to try to categorize what, do you, what would you say your quote-unquote family life was like? Chaotic. My father was a brilliant man that married a woman in six months because she lied to him and told him she was pregnant and inconveniently had a miscarriage right after their honeymoon. <clears throat> it was chaotic. 
My sister was a child born out of wedlock and abandoned by her father who thought my mother was so crazy he didn't even want anything to do with his own, his own seed. She ran into him online a few years back. My mom and my aunt got involved and my mom started sending him letters talking about how she was glad he was back in my sister's life and how they had so much catching up to do. The nigga fucking deleted his Facebook the next day. That's how bad he ain't want to fuck with my mom. He said, fuck that. That nigga deleted all his social media, wouldn't talk to my sister no more. I came on to my mom, you selfish as fuck. That's her father. You ain't supposed to be worried about that. Well, he, we have a child and grandchildren. That nigga don't want nothing to do with you. What was your mother's education level? What was her career? Like, what did she do? Um, my mother has two bachelor's degrees, one in regular education and one in special education, which goes to prove that anybody can get a college degree. What was her career? Uh, My mother was a school teacher. She teached in Camden, New Jersey, one of the worst school systems in the state of New Jersey. She teached in the roughest schools because they paid the most money and they really didn't care who they hired because my mother's a delusional schizophrenic. I don't know who the fuck would trust her with a classroom full of kids. <laughs> Other than Kansas fucking New Jersey. But thank you for the pension. Like everybody say, I've been living off of it for years. <laughs> My mom, her career ended at Broadway. She couldn't handle the classrooms anymore, so they kept dropping her down, and they gave her the kindergarten that last year. She lost them, the whole fucking class. <laughs> they went out for recess, and she lost the motherfucking class, the whole fucking class. <laughs> Them little motherfuckers went down the street to the corner store. <laughs> She's supposed to be watching them on the recess. She lost the fucking kids. I'm sitting there talking to her principal. Listen to me, your mother's gonna have to. We're gonna, I said, please, my father's dying. Just let her retire. We invested a lot into getting her this far. Please let her retire. Do not make us fight for her pension. And so that's when my mother retired and then my father died eight months later. And I've been taking care of my mom ever since. What was his ailment? Oh, I mean, my dad had 22 strokes. He had Parkinson's. Bleeding on the brain at the end. He beat the prostate cancer, but the diabetes and the Parkinson's, see. Hardest thing in the world to do is watch my father lose his mind. Because he was one of the most brilliant motherfuckers I ever met. Only person smarter than my dad is my son. As far as... Um, God bless the dead. Did you have to move a lot as you were young, or did you stay pretty much uh, stationary in one house? We right? moved until we got comfortable. My dad was an upwardly mobile Negro. They left Philadelphia, they moved to Jersey, to the suburbs, keep us out the city. But we was in the city every day because the cleaning business was in the city. So I was in Philadelphia every day no matter what. I literally grew up on both sides of the bridge, period. I was in the Northeast in the morning, in Logan before school, then in Jersey in private school, then back <laughs> to Philly 
you know, so we was over the bridge at least twice a day, almost every day. So I grew up in both places. I just gravitated towards the hood. I liked double dutch. I liked sunflower seeds. I liked oatmeal pies. I liked, I liked dollar hoagies. I liked boom boxes and the sound of the city. Jersey, it got quiet, too quiet. And everybody was more fucked up in the suburbs than most of the people in the city anyway. Suburb people so much more fucked up than city people. See, city people got to deal with danger every day so they know how to avoid it. Suburb people, there is no danger, so they always fucking looking for it because they bored as fuck. They're a lot more dangerous than city kids. I had more fucked up shit happen to me fucking with suburb motherfuckers than I ever did happen with city niggas. What kind of crimes did you see that kind of happening around the neighborhood? And you're like, and you're I mean, at, just ask me. So let's just say from age three to seven, did you witness? When I was three years old, I saw my first murder. I seen a man get a hole blown through him right from my face. I mean, I've witnessed over 150 murders in my life, so I guess I processed it. How did it affect you, would you say, the first one? Learn the difference between life and death. I killed, a, I killed a bee, and I cried for days because I felt like a murderer. And I thought God was going to punish me and send me to hell. When you experience murder and death and as a child, it makes you innately in tune with the gravity of life and death. It was moving, it's no longer moving. And something made that happen. Yeah. As far as fun, what would you say were some fun things that you had a chance to do growing up? It wasn't a lot of fun. It wasn't a lot of fun. It was a lot of work and a lot of studying and a lot of time alone. You got to realize the closest person to age proximity to me in my household was nine years. I grew up with grown people. I had a sister that was a grown woman when I was born. I was always alone. Did you witness any grown things? Of course I did. Did they try to protect you from that or no? Not really. My childhood was catch up or get left behind. Do you remember your first crush? Yeah. Little boy lived um, in Frankfurt, around the corner from Fifth House. He had a crush on me. He kissed me when I was seven years old. He was eight. And he was my boyfriend for a week. And then I broke up with him because I was waiting on Bobby Brown. 
I was gonna marry Bobby Brown. Whitney got him. Ain't that a bitch? I'm so glad she did, cause I couldn't have handled that nigga. What would you say was your first real relationship? Hmm. That's complicated. Walt. Walt. Walter Williams III in Williamstown, New Jersey, around the corner from my Aunt Paulette house. I was 13. He was 23. He worked at the car dealership where my dad bought his Chrysler van, and um, he slid me his phone number, and we talked. Walt was sweet. He was in my life on and off about, till I was about 17. After that last time he went to jail for murder. <coughs> I tried to stick by him on that case as best as I could, but he was going away for life. He, um, he did contracts. I didn't believe him when he first told me. And then one night he came to my parents' house. I snuck him in through the back, let him use the shower downstairs. He was covered in blood. It was a job gone wrong. And he got arrested for it a year later. First degree murder for contract. He would ride his bike for 15 miles just so he could sleep next to me for an hour and a half. He made me feel so safe. His mama hated me. She thought I was going to get him arrested because I was so young. My eighth grade graduation, I was a valedictorian of my class. I had finished my eighth grade year in three months. They didn't elect me class president because I wasn't the most popular. So the only way I was going to be able to give a speech at my eighth grade graduation was if I was valedictorian. So I said, okay, I guess I'm just going to be valedictorian then. And they all laughed at me. And I just started taking my, um, textbooks home every weekend and I read them from cover to cover and uh, I completed all all the year's schoolwork before Christmas break so at that point in time I was only going to um, school for attendance and I would do um, peer tutoring and uh, I gave the speeches valedictorian <laughs> that day was special Walt was very proud of me I was about to turn 14, he was about to turn 24. There was nothing like it. My dad refused to let me ride with my classmates in a limousine to the graduation. They was all gonna go out to eat first and then ride 
in my whole class, because it was only eight of us that were graduating, was private school. So, yeah, now see, that brings up other memories. Fucking Bush Gardens in my eighth grade trip. That was terrible. My dad beat my ass in front of my whole class because he thought I had ran off with a boy that gave me his phone number. He couldn't find me. I was downstairs in the lobby talking to my mom. I called her collect. And when I came upstairs, he thought I had left with that boy from Bush Gardens. So he uh, pulled me into the room and he fucked me up. And he slammed the door so hard that it popped open so all my classmates saw. As my eighth grade trip. I worked hard. I raised, raised $2,000 for my class to have that trip. I was a trip coordinator and valedictorian in my eighth grade class. That was a fucking uncomfortable ride home. Everybody fucking staring at me trying to figure out how I just took that ass whooping like that and I got a shiner and I'm just walking around normal. So anyway, my eighth grade graduation, um, my father never apologized about that. I waited a whole fucking month for the phone bill to come in so he could see the collect call from Virginia to New Jersey and say, I'm sorry, I fucked up. And he was like, well, you probably did something else wrong, so fuck it. See, I've been telling the truth all of my life and people haven't been believing me, even my own family. So my graduation, Walt really, um, Walt wanted to kill my dad so many times and I said, no. My mom won't know what to do without him. Let him be. Your parents knew of this relationship? Nah. I've always been good at keeping secrets. They had no idea. He was sleeping at our house four nights a week. I would sneak him in through the back. I would take the screen off after everybody went to sleep. He would come park his bike on the side of the car. He never drove a car. He always rode a bike. Park his bike on the side of the house, sneak around, jump over the fence, come through the back window, and then just come into the room. And then uh, he would have to be gone by 4 o'clock because Dad was up by no later than quarter to 5, so. <laughs> yeah, I lived downstairs at the time, and they were upstairs, so. I never told anybody about that. I'm curious, how would you describe what your teachers would say, what kind of student you were? Difficult and brilliant. I've always been smarter than my teachers. I've always let them know it. Got suspended a lot because of it. My father always said, don't ever let nobody that's dumber than you think they smarter than you. So anyway, my eighth grade graduation, on the day of my graduation, 
My mom, she never asked me where I got my money from. I always had money. Walt always gave me money. Walt would give me like two stacks a month to get my hair done, go shopping, do whatever I want. So on my eighth grade graduation, because I was valedictorian, all these trucks just showed up at my house since I wasn't allowed to celebrate with the rest of my class and I had to ride with my parents and ride back home with my parents and I couldn't go out to dinner and I couldn't ride in the limo even though I raised the money to get the limo. Um, Walt just, he just sent trucks. First came a truck with flowers. Six dozen Red, white, and purple roses. Six fucking dozen. Then came the truck, and it was all of this candy and teddy bears and balloons. And then another car came, and I had to sign for the package, and it was a brand new Rolex. A lady's Rolex, my first Rolex. I was floored. I came back from getting my hair done and I had my layered stacks and my asymmetrical cut and, and my boyfriend showered me. My father lost his mind. Beat the shit out of me right before I had to go to my graduation and took everything and gave it to his girlfriend. I got a typewriter as my graduation gift. Cause I was gonna need it for boarding school. Did he send you to boarding school at all? Yeah, I had a full scholarship. Graduated valedictorian in my class, I had 10 scholarships. Best boarding schools on the East Coast. My dad picked the school. White seven-day Adventist and Christian, and I didn't fit in. So I started running away with one of my roommates on the weekends, because it was up in North Jersey by the Delaware Water Gap. So we was only 45 minutes outside of Manhattan and a half an hour away from North, from Brick City, from Plainfield. And that's when I started getting into Islam. First, it was 5% Nation of Islam. And then I met Big L in Brick City. And we was creeping. But I started seeing Shia Muhammad, who's Dr. York, Dr. Malachi's York son. I'm trying to remember if he was in the 70s or the 90s. Either he was the 75th son or the 90-something son. But he was very important to his father. And I was promised to him. But that was after. 
I got pregnant before I got pregnant with my son. I never told my family about it until I was grown. I ran away from home. I gave birth to my daughter at the mosque and she was dead 13 weeks later and after she died, I went home. And then that's, I hooked up with Elle after that. And then uh, I got promised to Shia. And... What age was this as far as? Uh... 15, 14, 15 is. There was a lot that happened in that year. Cause I went to boarding school, I didn't fit in. I had a job, but I was a scholarship kid. I was smarter than everybody. The fucking dean hated me at my dorm and she was a piece of fucking shit. She was married to a younger guy. Her father was on the board of the school and all they did was fuck all day and smoke weed and act like we couldn't smell it. And I just, I'm like, you an entitled little white bitch. This nepotism shit is going too fucking far. You, you're not fit to be the dorm mother for teenage girls, you act like one yourself. She didn't like me so much, so she started doctoring up my file and putting shit in my file that wasn't true about me. I had a friend of mine that worked in her office as her assistant, and she bumped into my file and saw her doctoring up my file saying I was doing all this shit. She like staged all of these fucking events of shit that I didn't even fucking do. I could have probably handled it differently. The next day we had a dorm meeting. I wasn't speaking. She insisted that I speak. I told her, you don't want me to speak because you don't want to hear what I got to say about you. And she said, well, I'll just write it. I'll just write this in your file. I was like, like the rest of the fiction you wrote in my file. How do you know what's in your file? I said, bitch, because I broke into your fucking office and I read it last night. And she said, Oh, well, I'm writing you up for that. I was like, you know what? Let me give you something to really write up. So I got up and I went into the bathroom and in the powder room in the lobby by the phone booths. This is at Garden State Academy, seven-day Adventist school. You fucks. I went into that fucking bathroom and I ripped the motherfucking, um, <clears throat> the towel rack off the wall. And I came back out there in front of everybody and I beat the fuck out of her with that shit. I beat that fucking bitch until she bled out her fucking mouth, nose. She's bleeding out of fucking ear. Waka, waka, waka. They finally got me off her, and then all of us, I'm the devil. <laughs> She's a demon. She can't be in a Christian. Fuck y'all. I do Muslim anyway, bitch. So then I couldn't get into no other school because they thought that they was going to press criminal charges against me and so I lost my ninth grade year. They stole all my shit. They fucked up my clothes. They cut up my clothes. I mean, it was cool. I went home and then I left home. I went back to New York. I went to Brooklyn. I was staying at the community at Bushwick and Flatbush. I ran away from home when I got tired. But, uh, yeah, my ninth grade year was a wash, and then we had to figure out what school would take me because of my violent tendencies. And then I got raped. 
by um, my sister fiance. I left home because me and my dad was arguing. He asked me, was I still talking to that murderer that buys me all the gifts? I'm so glad he never found that fucking Rolex. I ended up pawning that shit and keeping the money because I couldn't wear it. I only got 7500 for it. He paid 25 What did he do? Who? Walt? Yeah. He was a contract killer for the Gambino family. Um, in the situation in which you were violated by technically, technically a family member, um, he made 20 stacks a job. And every time he did a job, he gave me five, five grand. Yeah. During the course of our relationship, Walt Reader must have gave me about 150000 How fucked up is it when you're nine years older than your sister, you 14, and she fucking 23, and that bitch coming asking you to borrow money? I used to peel money off to my sister. At 13! That's how long I've been getting money. That my 20 something year old sister would come. You, you got like $300? Hold on, let me see. And you let your daughter do that surviving Tasha K shit? Fuck you, bitch. Because I paid for her too. I paid for all your fucking kids and your son, your fucking disrespect. Oh, I raised all your fucking kids, bitch, while you sat there and you fucking smoked crack and fucked everything. Let's do it like that. Uh. So anyway, me and my dad got into an argument. You still fucking with that killer? You still fucking with that? He could kill you. I wish he'd kill you. We duped it out. I got him up underneath his ribs. He got me in the jaw. I left. My father didn't beat me after a certain age. We just fist fought. I remember the first time my dad got scared of me. That was interesting. Because I wasn't going to stop fighting him back. I didn't give a fuck how hard he hit me. I was going to hit him back with every fucking thing I had. Fuck that. You going to respect me. So yeah, I went to my sister's house and she was stripping at some piece of shit bar in Frankfurt. Stripping and getting high. Her fiance, Jamie Wallace, was supposed to have been going to Atlanta with his cousins and his uncle and his brother for the weekend. So the apartment was supposed to have been empty except for when my sister was home. I needed some time alone. I, I could have called my friends. 
I could have hung out with my friends. I could have called my dude, Tweet. Tweet would have came, picked me up. We could have burned one. Like, I wanted to be alone. So I went to my sister's place because she was at work. And her boyfriend was supposed to have been in Atlanta for the weekend. I got there. I took the bus to 554. Got off at La Martinique Bowling Alley. The apartments was right across the street, Stratmere. She left the key under the mat. I went to the apartment. All I did was listen to music and smoke a joint and a couple of Lucy's that I bought. Ate a poor man meal, three chicken wings, rice and gravy. And I laid down on the couch. She called, check on me, see if I made it in the house okay. I told her I was sleeping on the couch. She was like, no, you can lay down on the bed. Ain't nobody gonna be there. You ain't gotta sleep. I was like, no, that's you and Jamie bed. I don't need to sleep in your bed. I'll just lay here on the couch. I'll be fine. She said, ain't nobody, you ain't got no company. I was like, no, I just want to be alone. And she said, just lay down on the bed. I'll wake you up when I get home and we'll have breakfast and we can talk about what happened with you and dad. So I laid on her bed. I didn't get under the covers. I didn't even take my clothes off. I only took my shoes off. I left my socks on everything. I went to sleep. And when I woke up, Jamie Wallace was on top of me. I was trying to get my bearings. You got to understand, I'm 14, 15 years old, about to turn 15. At that time, I was 104 pounds. I was only five foot three and a half. I was little. I, I was barely wearing a size B bra. I think I was like a B32, I was little. He climbed on top of me, pulled my pants down and rigged them around my ankles so I couldn't run. I knew you was gonna feel like this. I knew you would feel better than your sister. You gonna be the shit when you grow up. He's fucking saying this shit while he's raping me. I fought him off, I kicked him in the nuts. I got one of my feet loose. I ran out the crib, half naked, dragging my pants on one leg. Before I got to the door to get to the street, I pulled my pants up and I ran to Whitehorse Pike, Route 30. Wasn't no bus in sight. So I just ran, I was on the track team. I was real fast when I was young. I must have ran three and a half miles until I finally caught up with a bus. I got on the bus and took the bus, got off, Taunton and White Horse Pike in Berlin. It's a dark road, about two miles to the crib. And all I did was repeat the Lord's Prayer over and over, and I walked all the way home. I got in the house, went in my parents' room, my mom was on the phone gossiping. I told her I had to talk to her. I didn't quite know how to tell her what had happened to me. Me and my mother never talked about, we had never had 
the mother-daughter sex talk. <laughs> and she was such a fucking prude. I, how the fuck do you explain what just happened? And I said, Mom, he done terrible things to me. He a fucking monster. Shelly can't marry him. I got to call my sister. She can't fucking marry him. And my mom said, well, she's pregnant. I said, yeah, he's a fucking rapist. She can't marry him. He's a monster. Well, I don't know if I would tell her if I was you. Well, why not? Well, women don't like hearing bad things about their men. That was the first time I realized how fucked up in the head my mother was. I said, well, I need to go to the hospital. I need to call the police. Oh, no, you can't do that. If you do that, your father will just... No, he'll kill Jamie, and, and, and Shelly has to get married. She's pregnant out of wedlock again. She has to get married. I said, he's a fucking monster. I'm like, okay, I can't get ready. I can't get through to you. Call my sister. My sister got home from the club. I made my mom take me in the middle of the night back to the apartment. Shelly got into the car. I told her everything that happened exactly as it happened. How I could have that conversation with very easily because that was the person that I talked to about life shit. What a mistake. Because that bitch ain't got no good advice for no fucking body. So after I tell her everything and say, you cannot marry him, you cannot marry him, that motherfucker's evil. And she looked at me and said, well, I'm just going to have to talk to him and see what he got to say about it. So fuck you need. I'm telling you what the fuck he done to me. Yeah, well, we just going to have to see what he got to say. And that's why I was like, all right, I'm going home. Good luck with that. Her and my mom got together. They worked the story. I was jealous that she was getting married because I didn't have no boyfriend. I'm fucking one of the greatest rappers ever fucking lived in the world. And they fucking ain't knowing. But I'm jealous. I'm a crackhead rapist. I'm fucking Lamont Coleman on the side. Promise to Dr. York's son in the front. And I'm jealous of a crackhead fucking rapist that rapes little girls? That's what they told my father. Told my father if I came to him talking about this shit that I made it all up because I was jealous and not to believe me. That's what my mother and my sister did to me after I was raped. I, um, I contracted the clap and crabs and gonorrhea. I wasn't allowed to go to the hospital. I wasn't allowed to talk to the police. My god brother, Keon, took me to Planned Parenthood down the CDC, South Philly, on Broad Street, so I could be treated for VD and pregnancy get my HIV test. I went through all that by my fucking self and my family and helped me with shit. And three months later, I had to sing at that motherfucking wedding. I had to sing the Lord's Prayer and watch my father walk my sister down the aisle to the pussy that had just raped me. And this bitch fucking Jamie, piece of shit, fucking South Philly task, a project, piece of shit, motherfucker sitting there smiling with a shit-eating fucking grin. 
He wasn't smiling because he was happy to get married. He was smiling because he knew in that moment that he'd gotten away with murder and he wasn't never going to go to jail for what he'd done to me. Fuck you, Janie. I hope you catch something they can't cure. Or maybe somebody rape you the way you raped me. Maybe I ought to pay somebody to do it. Maybe I finally fucking feel better. I've been gang raped by fucking worse than you, bitch. And you're the only rape that haunts me. I guess because you're still breathing because the rest of them pussies ain't. Don't nobody get to touch me for free. And you ain't dead yet. You owe me! You owe me fucking flesh, bitch! And fuck my fucking sister. I told her until she fucking publicly acknowledged what they done to me, she can't call herself my sister ever again. Fuck you and your motherfucking kids that you had with that rapist, bitch. I don't get no fuck if our mom was raped and all our aunts was raped and if incest was fucking normal. It wasn't ever normal to me! I can't argue. Uh, this is all before your 18th, so I don't want to end with anything before. I hadn't even got pregnant with Giovanni yet. When, when, how old were you when that happened? When I was 15, after the rape, after the wedding, I left home again. And I didn't come back until I was five months pregnant. See, my sister and her husband, after they got married, moved back home with my parents. Because he's about to go to prison for that credit card scam that they did. And uh, my sister, she turned state's evidence, and he took, a, he took a deal. So they pretty much stayed at my parents' house up until right before he went away. They got a little railroad apartment down Hamilton. And then he went to jail. But I didn't come home until I was pregnant and showing because I figured that would be the only way he wouldn't touch me. So, so I, I got pregnant to protect myself. Giovanni's father. Yeah, Donnie. Donnie. Was that a relationship? No, he was my choreographer for my girl group, Philly's Blunt. Black Ladies United in Truth. <laughs> that was my first group. We was going to be TLC, but it was six of us, and we could all dance, we could all rap, and I was the lead vocalist. He goes, Donne is what he calls himself, but his name is Donald Boykins.
Hello, you have reached Steve Wakens. I'm not available at the moment. Leave your name, your number, and a brief message, and I'll return your phone call as soon as time allows. Thank you. At the tone, please record your message. When you've finished recording, you may hang up or press 1 for more options. Donnie, they, they filming me talking about my life story. Um, and we're getting to the section where I got pregnant with Giovanni. So if there's anything you don't want me to talk about, you need to um, hit me back and let me know. I know we haven't talked since 2018. I know, I know, I'm fucking terrible. But I, I don't want to, um, I don't want to, I don't, I don't want to paint you in a bad light. So just uh, let me know what you don't want me to say. All right, bye. If you're satisfied with the message, press 1. To listen to send your message with normal delivery, press 1. To send your message with urgent delivery, press 2. Thank you. Your message has been sent. Before we get to that part, there's been a lot of, you know, with the music where, you know, you're creating. But there was also a lot of destruction that was happening around you, um, or I'm assuming. Um, let's say, you know, as you're getting to your teenage years, um, did you have any close either friends, family members that you lost? My cousins and my aunts. When I ran away, I would usually go live with them unless I went to New York. And when I was in New York, I was either down 117th and 2nd with my dude who I used to hustle um, Coke and chocolate tie with. His mom told everybody I was her daughter, so nobody questioned why I was in the neighborhood. Or I stay out Brooklyn, out Flatbush. Um, but if I was in the city, I would either be with my cousin Mark or I'd be at my Aunt Frieda's down Southwest Philly, or I'd be at my Aunt Belinda's up uh, Logan, um, 4800 block of Marshall Street, Fifth and Loudon, UNLV. Or I was down the projects with my Aunt Dot down uh, Richard Allen. Did you have any close people that passed away or didn't make it? Early on in your life? Oh, God. Yeah, that, that's a long list. By the time I was 19, I had been to over 150 funerals of just my friends. And I sang at two-thirds of those funerals. The worst was when they murdered Sutan. nigga from the neighborhood. He was a hustler. We, you know, neighborhood dude. Al Logan. Sutan was so cool. Shit. <laughs> See, Sutan liked to get money, and I like to get money. So I always had, like, mad respect for him. He got caught up in some shit. They cut him down. Huntington Park, broad daylight in front of everybody. They shot him like 50 times. And then there was my ex-dude, Anthony, who lived up Cayuga, 
15th and Caillou going up the side of Broad Street. He hustled on my side, Logan's side, UNLV side, and um, there was that day. Me and Aunt had just really started seeing each other. He was a hustler. He called me short. Everybody, you know, that's back when everybody was saying, yo, shorty, yo, shorty. He always had to be special. He got rid of the E, just short, yo, short. <laughs> I was short. He came over every day after school. After I got home from school, because I was going to William Penn, he would meet me at Broad and Alany or meet me at Broad and Loud and stop and take me get something to eat. And we go to my aunt's house or we go to his mom's house where he lived and kick it, smoke, whatever. Me and his mom was cool. Um, I don't know if Anthony's still alive. I hope he is. I hope he got better. Anthony was at my crib all day. I played hooky. Danny was doing a deal with them niggas over on, um, oh, what street was that? Like 11th and Loudon, basically. No, what's the hocking? What's the hocking? They was fucking with some Puerto Rican niggas from the, from the Badlands. They was doing some business with them. Danny was always real cocky. He was on some, I'm gonna take your girl shit all the time. Fucked around with the wrong Puerto Rican niggas. Fucked around with the wrong chick. Little did they know them niggas had been following them all day. Annie at my house, we laid up eating beef and broccoli, watching um, old episodes of Martin and shit. And I'll never forget when Danny came pick him up. And it was Danny driving, and then the other two young bulls that they hustled with was in the back seat. And kissed me, jumped into the car. I had to go to Jersey because I was under court-ordered mandatory um, psychiatric treatment because I had a break, and I beat this girl up real bad. I, I, I beat her in her face with a brick. I snapped. I, so I had to go to Jersey every Thursday to meet with my psychiatrist, and um, he was like, call me as soon as you get to Jersey. I might come down here tonight. And I'm like, cool. And so I got on the train. I took the train. I got off of Camden. My mom picked me up, took me to my therapist's office. I went back to my family house in Berlin to sleep. And then I was going to take the train to go to school first thing in the morning. Back to Philly. I called Anthony. I called his mom's house, his sister picked up the phone, and she was like, short, short, is that you? I'm like, yeah, where Annie at? I'm, 
you know, I finished my homework or whatever. I wanted to see if he was still coming to Jersey tonight because my boy got a party and yada, yada, yada. And she was like, it ain't going nowhere. I said, what you mean he ain't going nowhere? She was like, he in the hospital. I'm like, what do you mean he in the hospital? Where he at? She was like, he down Temple. He down Temple in the ICU. I'm like, what the fuck you mean he in the ICU? So that's when his sister tell me that six blocks away after leaving my aunt's house at 4803 Marshall Street, the Puerto Rican niggas followed Danny and them down to the block. They pulled up alongside of them, ran up Desert Eagle pump guns. The two niggas in the back seat, they blew the, both of their heads off. The one dude, they had the windows up because it was still wintertime. So they put, they put the, the pump guns on the windows. They shot through the window. It spun the one bullet. The one charge took, it, it took Danny's whole knee. So his leg ended up having to be amputated. Um, but he was able to drive to Temple with the left leg. They tried to blow Anthony's head off, but he had put his hand up. So when they shot, it instantly blew the middle finger and the pointer finger off. And it twisted the blasting up. So instead of going into his head and his head exploding, it just took off like this piece of his head and his brain was exposed. And that um, happened six blocks away after he kissed me goodbye, told me my kind of jersey. So um, I got the bus schedule. I knew the head of the ICU unit because it was my boo tweet. It was his mom, his mom. Roger Shade, my Miss Betty. Betty Shade, she was the head of the Noro Intensive Care Unit. So I was able to get in, even though I was technically not family, to go see him. My cousin Donald, God rest his soul, he died during the pandemic, 2020. Um, Donald came with me. And when we, we walked into the room, and Aunt was, you know, he had the shit down his throat, man. And um, his, they had stapled what they could staple together to cover the brain, because the skull was gone there. And, um, and uh, he, he was, his hand was bandaged up because the two fingers was missing, and he, but his thumb was real black, so it had already started dying. And I, I went into the hospital, and I, I grabbed his hand, and I, 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 and I said, Annie, it's me, it's short. And then he, he kind of snapped awake, and he started grabbing. <laughs> And the machines was going off, and Miss Betty had to rush us out. And my cousin was just crying. He was like, "Yo, Annie fucked up. Yo, Annie." Fu and them niggas came to our crib, and Annie survived. He was in the hospital. The other two was dead on arrival because both of their heads got blown out. They had to amputate Danny's leg, um, and they had to put a plate. Well, I mean, in Danny's leg, and Annie had to get the plate. 
but they didn't put it in right away because the blood clots kept forming on his brain, so they had to just staple it because they had to go on. So, yeah, I, I was in the hospital with him every day. Um, Temple Hospital, they brought in Allegheny, which is a major stop on the Orange Line, and I went to school at William Penn, which is a broad in Girard, which was a major stop. So I could catch the express train, get on at Girard, and then the next stop was, you know, Allegheny. And so I was there every day. I'd go to school, leave school, go to McDonald's, get him a quarter pound of meal, two apple pies, and um, a chocolate shake. And I was sneaking into the hospital because he hated hospital food. And the McDonald's was right there at the corner of Broad and Gerard. It was perfect. So, um, and I would come and I would do my homework and sit with him. And then I found out other bitches was sitting with him. And then I came in one day and then Miss Betty was like, um, have you been coming up here having sex with him? And I'm like, fuck no, I ain't having sex with him in no hospital. He's, he's got half a brain. Like, I, he got to recover. She said, well, child, and who gave him the clap? And I'm like, what the fuck you mean he got the clap? This nigga had other fucking booty bitches from the neighborhood coming down there fucking him during the day while I was in school and then get rid of them out of the hospital. So he getting pussy, pussy, pussy. He fucking caught the clap. You got half a fucking brain, but your dick's just... Anyway, we broke up after he got home. He finally came home. He wasn't right. He just, he wasn't right. And uh, one day we was laying in his bed and we was smoking an L. And I was high as shit. And he started rubbing me with his hand. But see, that thumb died. So all of this was gone. And all he had was the ring finger and the pinky finger. And the rest of the hand was gone. So he's sitting there rubbing me with the two fingers, you know, and he's trying to caress me. And I've been an asshole my whole life. I'm just real honest. I said, nigga, you feel like fucking Captain Hook. Get that shit the fuck off me. <laughs> he's like, you a fucking bitch. I'm like, you fucking cripple. <laughs> it was just a real North Philly relationship. And then we went to the McDonald's one day, and he had a seizure in the McDonald's, and I got him home. He had messed all over himself. He had dropped his food and you know, all of that with the, and he was like, I'm fucked up, short. I ain't, I ain't no good, and your life just getting started. Don't come around here no more. And I'm like, fuck you talking about? I nursed you all the way through the hospital. You cheated on me. You got the fucking clap. You scared me half to death. You got piece of brain. You got piece of hand. I've been here all this shit. And you breaking up with me? And he looked at me. He said, short. I'm out. I'm out the game. All I'm going to do is hold you back. Don't come back here no more. I got dressed and I left, and I never saw Anthony again. I, I never drove past his mother house. Like, even when I was driving around the city, I avoided his block so I would never run into him. I don't know if Annie's still alive. But if you are, 
I'm sorry. I'm still mad at you for getting the clap in the hospital. So I have to ask, um, were you not, did you have any fear in you back then as far as, you know, the drug gang, the violence that was going on around uh, in, in your neighborhood in Jersey? I understood that violence. It had rules. It had structure. My home life didn't have no rules. Didn't have no structure. I'd rather be fucked over by a stranger than be fucked over by my family. Because if, at least if it's a stranger, I won't feel bad about shooting you because you're a stranger. I might think twice if you're my family. It was just easier that way. Did you see yourself ever being like, involved in a life of crime? I know the, the music. I'm a criminal. I've learned how to be a law-abiding citizen. Make you no mistake. I am a fucking criminal. I'm just good at being a criminal. I can't complain about any of the time I've spent in jail in my adult life. The truth is, if I had got caught doing any of the shit that I really did, I'd still be in jail now. So I can't be mad at a couple months in the county and I ain't got no penitentiary number when I, ch I should be doing 25 to life. Did the police know you by name? The feds know me by name. Fuck the cops. Ain't nothing but fucking security guards. So, on the creation part, the music. You Saved said, my life. Who were you? you you said there was a band that was put together, or a group of girls. Yeah, my group, Philly's Blunt. What was that? Me and my cousins and my girlfriends from my block, Black Ladies Unite, Philly's Blunt. This was when Blunts was very big. We was going to be bigger than TLC because there was more of us, and I could sing. There were six girls in the group, so we had double what TLC had. So the routines, the choreography, dope as fuck. But then everybody got boyfriends and started getting pregnant. Or the ages of um, that was everybody in the group was between the age of 13 to 15. And we had a manager, and I got us booked for our first talent show. And then that get, got me a gig singing backgrounds for a girl from Southwest Philly. I can't remember her name now. She lived down um, 47th and um in Baltimore. I was at 47th and Woodland, so I would have to go over her house and do the choreography. That's where I met my baby daddy. He was doing choreography for her, too. And um, we did a Teen Summit. I was her, one of her backup dancers for Teen Summit. Yeah. And then she, um, she got fucked over by Hak Islam, and nobody ever heard from her again. Hak Islam fucked her over so he could manage Maya. And Drew Hill. And then we... Being, being love bitches who he got all of them pregnant. He got the whole fucking group pregnant. How the fuck you the manager and you get every bitch in the group pregnant? We must be in. We must be in love. You remember that song? 
Yup. Hockey and Slime fucked all them bitches, got them all pregnant. How old was he? I don't fucking know. He old as fuck now. He was old as dirt then. Hawk was in his 40s back then. That was in the early 90s, so. Hawk should be like damn near 70. Dirty bitch. I'm so glad Maya ain't give you no pussy. You was trying to fuck her too hot. <laughs> your dirty fucking pedophile ass. But I do know that you fuck Cisco. Hot. Nobody's safe. Nobody's safe. What you think I ain't know? Maya told everybody you was fucking Cisco. <laughs> it's Sigma Cell. Everybody tells Mike Tarsia everything. Because everybody gets high with Mike Tarsia. <laughs> First time I seen Grace Jones fucking ass, ball, pussy, naked was with Mike Tarsia. Because she only sing in the booth naked. That's the only way Grace Jones can record. She got to be ass naked in the booth. But yeah. So anyway, what was we talking about? Philly's blunt. Yeah, that came and went. Everybody got pregnant. And then I became a solo artist. <laughs> but I wasn't a singer. I was a rapper. A rapper. Yeah. That's where the name Jaguar come from. I was in a, I was in a, um, after Philly's blunt, I got into a group from Chester, Pennsylvania called the Zoo Click. And so everybody had animal names. But they all had like cool names and shit, Wolverine and Grizz and all. I'm like, I want an X-Man name. But they said, you want to be Jack? Jimmy looked at me. I was dating Jimmy at the time. I did a lot of dating when I was young. So I was dating Jimmy at the time. Jimmy Grizz from Fat Cat, not from Fat Cat Click, from the Zoo Click. Everybody was a click back then. And um, Jimmy was like, Jack, if you want to be in the group, your name is Jaguar. If your name ain't Jaguar, you can't be in the group. I was like, fuck it, I wanna be in the group. I'll be this Jaguar bullshit. I felt like I was getting cheated. And being the geek that I am, I started studying the animal. And I started realizing how much I had in common with the animal. And then I started loving this animal. And I became that animal. I became Jaguar. I was the illest female MC on the streets of Philadelphia. I ghost wrote for Eve. I ghost wrote for Foxy Brown and she don't even know it. <laughs> Easiest thousand dollars I ever made. Fuck you, Inga. You ungrateful bitch. Frank Bank came to me and asked me ghost write for Eve before you died. And I did. I ghost wrote for a lot of people. You're welcome, Candy. And I'm talking about Candy Burris from Escape. Those early records that I wrote, those demos that I wrote down at Key Sweat Studio that your manager took and gave to y'all and had y'all front off like you actually fucking wrote them. Stole my records clean out from underneath me. I never got paid, Escape. But when, when the records made it a hit on the radio, it told me one thing. If they can steal your shit and, and it can make it on the radio, you can do your shit and it can make it on the radio. So y'all welcome. 
for them ASCAP awards and shit that you got for them early records. Y'all bitches know you didn't write. But I ain't hating. I'm happy for you. Bravo. There's still a... No, because there's the whole in between that time after I had Giovanni and getting signed, there were the four years that I was a dominatrix and a pimp. Being a young adolescent and kind of knowing how you were, you know, how your life was, did you want anything? Like, yes, I wanted six kids. So with that being said, uh, I had six kids. I only had one living child. Your first time getting pregnant was the time you actually had divine No. Before. I was pregnant before then. I kept him because I lost the child. I had a baby while I ran away. I had a premature. She lived for 13 weeks. She died, sis. We buried her at the mosque in Plainfield in the backyard. Her name? Naija Nefatima Muhammad. Beautiful baby. I kept that shit. I ain't even tell my parents. All they knew was that I was gone and I came home. I never told my family about her. That was between me, her father, and the imam. And then her father got murdered right after that. So it was weird. It was a situation. I went to boarding school. I was fucking around. Akbar was dope. He had a twin brother. They hustled in Plainfield in North, down Brick City. And he came into my life. It was a whirlwind. I got pregnant while I was at boarding school, and I was, I was doing shit. <laughs> what age? Fourteen. And um. I like bad guys, but Ak was, he was just that dude that no matter what I asked him, he would do it. I could ask him for anything, and he would just do it. Like, that was the first time I experienced that. Like, a man that's really that much about you that there's anything you could ask for. If I had asked that nigga to buy me a plane, he would have fucking hustled until he got it. <laughs> and then gave it to me. Um, he was really smart. And he was very heavy on his dean. He was very heavy in the Islam. His belief made me want to believe. Like just the power that he... he he drew from reading the Quran and making prayer and we would make Salat and always praying to the East. You know, it was, we were kids, but he was so on his dean. And his brother was the exact opposite. His brother's identical twin was a fuck ass, 
was running around raping and fucking half of North Jersey, robbing. He had a lot of enemies. So what was your denomination growing up? Uh, I know you said- I was born and raised Seventh-day Adventist and I was rebaptized and I'm Seventh-day Adventist still. Um, but I really don't believe in religion. I honor the word. So people like me, we take the dean, the walk very seriously. I got pregnant. I had my pregnancy. I had Niasia when I was 28 weeks. And she was over seven pounds at 28 weeks. She was going to be huge. We was at the mosque. And one day I went to go nurse her and she was blue. And then her father got murdered six months later. After, after we buried her, I went home because I had been missing for like four months. So I always was missing when I was a kid. But I came home and it was like nothing ever happened. And I was doing dishes and I had just buried my child, but I was doing dishes and vacuuming carpets and raking up the leaves. Like nothing ever happened. Like I was never gone at all. I never brought it up. I never talked to nobody. Were you mentally prepped to be mother at the time? Mentally. God, no. No 14-year-old girl is. But it definitely it changed my perspective about what that is. I was at baby's mother for, for 13 weeks. And then um, I went to go visit Ark. We hadn't seen each other for like four or five months because when I came home, I knew I had to be home, you know. No. Yeah, pull up. You know what I mean? I, I got to, you know, do all the right things and because I was a runaway. So it was about four and a half months. And um, there was an audition. It was an open casting call in New York. And that was my excuse for leaving. I didn't go to the casting call. I never made it to New York. I got off in Trenton. <laughs> I picked me up and we drove the rest of the way to Plainfield and we hung out, you know, it was just like nothing, like no time had passed and I was leaving to go back home because I couldn't stay the night because I had to be back home. I was just going to New York for all audition and he put me in a cab to take me to the train station. Of course, he caked me out, gave me money. And as I was pulling off, that's when I seen the car come up and then four niggas um, jumped out and then they just shot him. Um, they thought he was his twin brother. Um, I had seen people get shot before. 
But when I saw him getting shot in that moment, the first thing that came to my mind was, Niaja gone, now he gone. And it's like this whole part of my life never happened. And so I made the cab pull around. He ain't want to pull around because they were shooting. I'm like, you better turn around. And he ain't want to turn around. So I pulled my knife out and I put it to his neck. And I said, so help me God, if you don't turn this car around, I'm going to cut your fucking throat. And um, he turned around. They got in the car and they pulled off. And I, and I got to be with Ark. It was about five minutes. And uh, he, he died on my lap. And he said, I'm going to be with her. I love you. He was going to be with our daughter. And he said, be strong. Because you're alone now. And um, I went to my people's crib. I didn't wait for the cops to come. I wasn't a witness and I wasn't asked no fucking questions. So I went to my girlfriend's house, Nefertima. She let me change, shower, get the blood off me, got me some clothes. I took the train, I went home. I did dishes. And I vacuumed. And I made beds and I did laundry. Like nothing ever happened. So when I got pregnant with Giovanni, there was absolutely no way I wasn't keeping him. I was keeping him. Um, I know the value of life. Niaja made it possible for Giovanni to survive. Because the truth is, is if that experience had never happened with Niaja, I would have had an abortion um, with Giovanni because I wasn't quite sure who his father was. I knew I wanted his father to be. And I knew who his father could be. His father wanted His father 10 years older than me too. But the guy that I was in love with was seven years older than me. That was complicated. I ended up being pregnant by Donnie. Um, I did the pregnancy. I went home when I was five months because I wanted to make sure I was showing because that rapist was still living in my house. So I figured if I was pregnant, he wouldn't fuck with me. So I went home when I was five months um, and started preparing to have Giovanni. And um, I mean, it was really wild because then there was that moment uh Uh, How old were you at this time? 15, going on 16. I was still fucking with John from the Bojack, see? 
Bojax is a notorious crime family in Philadelphia. Real niggas. I met John when I was coming from the hospital. Anthony, the one I told you got shot in the head. So once Anthony dumped me, I was like, fuck it, I might as well kick it with John because he would always see me going to, he, he saw me going to the hospital every day. Why, why you always going to the hospital? Why you always going to, you eat a lot of um, quarter, quarter pounds and I'm like, they not for me, you know? Because they was always up broad in Allegheny or they'd be on 15th Street hustling. So I was like, fuck it, mine as well. I didn't really understand the gravity of what I was getting into with the Bojacks. Number one, the biggest gangster in that family wasn't a man. It was the sister, Wanda. Wanda motherfucking Bojack. Only bitch tougher than my cousin Tyra in the South Philly area. Wanda motherfucking Bojack wasn't no joke. Wanda Bojack put a nigga down before a nigga get a chance. I seen Wanda Bojack rock a nigga in the fucking jaw with one shot and knock him out cold. Motherfuckers think I'm scary. I know scary bitches. Motherfucking Wanda Bojack. So I fucked with her little, her little cousin. John, Bobby was a brother. Bobby Bojack, crazy than a motherfucker. And Willie was special. They did what? They smoked, you know, they did butt naked. Willie started smoking that butt naked. I'll never forget, we was in the basement. Oh my God. House right off 39th and Lancaster on the bottom. Oh my God. So I'm not smoking this shit with them. Fuck that. I ain't smoking environment fluid. I had me a little joint, untouched, undipped. And I'm watching these niggas trip. They talking all kinds of crazy shit. They talking about aliens. They talking about Beavis and Butthead. They talk, I mean, they was just talking about all kinds of wild shit. Like they were having conversations, but it wasn't lining up. And I'm like, I'm gonna just ride this high out. I ain't gonna say shit. Next thing you know, Wooly pull out the motherfucking Glock. Loaded, cocked. One in the chamber. Take your fucking shoes off. Huh? Baby J, you fucking heard me. Take your motherfucker. Okay, yeah. I took my shoes off. Let me see your socks. So you know the little line at the top, you know, that goes over the toes? See, Willie said it's supposed to be at the bottom of the toe. It's not supposed to be at the top. <laughs> so he said, you see this? This how you wear socks, bitches. She got the line go at the bottom. And he's sitting there pulling my foot and showing me, let me see your motherfucking socks. <laughs> 
I swear to God, first motherfucker, they shit. If your line ain't at the bottom, it's gonna be a fucking problem. So he's checking everybody's socks. Bobby said, fuck you, bitch, and pulled the socks up so the line went to the top of the toe. Well, he said, oh, you think I'm fucking playing? Bobby, I don't get no fuck. Bang! <laughs> he shot his fucking, he shot his family in the leg over the fucking line in the sock. I said, listen to me here. Let me help y'all get y'all socks together. <laughs> I'm running around helping niggas. Get, please don't let this nigga shoot nobody else. You know, that's the Bojacks for you. You know what? We be in the car. We be chilling. Oh, we hungry. We need to get something to eat. Who got the food stamps? We ain't got no food stamps. How much money you got? I ain't spending no money on food. Go to the Chinese food store. Order a bunch of food. And then next thing you know, Bobby kicking the door and Willie go in and start beating motherfuckers, take the food after they cook it and rob the register, you know. <laughs> Fuck you ain't got the car running for. <laughs> I'm sitting in the car. I'm in the back seat. Bitch, this is a fucking robbery. What the fuck you ain't got the car running for? You didn't tell me it was going to be a rob. Okay, <laughs> let's go. <laughs> Oh, it was always an adventure with the Bojacks. Until I broke up with John. See, John wanted my baby. He wanted Giovanni to be his baby. And he was very upset with the fact that I got pregnant by somebody else. Even though we hadn't seen each other in five months. Because that the, last, the reason why I stopped seeing him was because the last time we was together, uh, I was dressed very cute. It was very nice. And I ended the night ended with brains all over the side of my fucking face. And at that point in time, I says, y'all niggas is just too comfortable with just killing people in front of me. I love y'all. Think you're cool. But I've had enough excitement. And um, John was just, you know, he wasn't very comfortable with the idea of me breaking up with him and having a baby with somebody else. So he kind of... um. He kind of took me hostage in his grandma's house and he tied me up in the basement. And uh, it, took me, it took me about 12 hours to get out of the house. And um, when he saw that I made it out the front door, he came after me with a gun. And this was in the middle of the day at 39th and Lancaster. Remember, baby, I showed you? And the trolley tracks is there. So he pistol with me with the gun, kicked me in my stomach and then pulled me out and waited for the trolley to come. And he was trying to hit me in the head to knock me out so the trolley would run over me. And then this guy came out of nowhere, socked the fuck out of John and was like, you ain't going to beat this woman to death in the street in front of me. And he picked me up and he carried me in his house and he cleaned me up and he took care of me. And I stayed with him for two days, and his name was Javon. I called him Javon the Angel, which is why I named Giovanni Giovanni. Because he didn't have to be here. That man hadn't intervened because John was going to hit me in the head. And so he was, I was going to get ran over by that trolley. Like, I wasn't breaking up with him. So... 
I've asked how many physical altercations would you say you were in before your 18th birthday? I don't know. A lot. I don't know. I mean, for a while there, it was weird when niggas didn't get shot. Like, damn, it's been quiet in the hood. <laughs> you know? Um, I think that that's what confuses people about me because I'm so cultured and I'm so refined and I'm so intelligent that they can't possibly imagine that that's the cover story for the real me. I guess it just never possibly crossed anybody's mind that maybe I'm a motherfucking monster too. Maybe I am a criminal. Maybe I am the worst of the worst. I mean, I, I'm the first to admit it. So I want to. Um, I've witnessed 100, over 150 murders in my life. Eyewitness. And I've never testified in court. Anyone else testify in your area? I mean, there's some people that tried. Most people that I know that flipped died. I want to take it two different directions. Like people couldn't possibly understand the fact that I'm totally comfortable smelling exit. Don't bother me at all. Don't even turn my stomach. That's how much I've been around it. What's the worst that you've probably seen? Uh, whether it's a gunshot, physical altercation, a blade or something? The worst? I can't talk about that. I can't talk about that. When it comes to but I've seen... <sighs> I put it to you this way. I became a hunter and a butcher on purpose because I'm not uncomfortable being around um, severed limbs. Blood doesn't bother me. Organs, flesh, even the smell doesn't bother me. Matter of fact, the only dead body I ever smelled that made me sick to my stomach was my son. I couldn't get the smell of his body out of my nose for three months. Couldn't eat. Every time I went to go eat, I just smelled his dead body. That's the only body that ever made me sick. But other than that, I mean, I fucked around with, with dangerous people. I, I hate to be able to admit it, but I've walked in the rooms like after fresh kills, watching people be hacked up in pieces right in front of me. Like we was just cutting up a cow. 
And that's how I was taught to see it. It ain't no different than killing an animal. Just a different kind of animal. I think that's why people get so uncomfortable around me because they don't understand that I truly live in my base animal self. I don't see what other people see. My husband, and I, I, I had to apologize for saying it to him. I said, please don't ever get to the point where all I see you is, is a meat sack. And I start wondering how many barrels of acid I'm going to need to dissolve you. Don't get me to that fucking point. People talk about life and death. But until you've seen it, like really experienced it, like I'm sitting there listening to all these people online, oh, the ashes, the ashes. You should see what I do with blood. People keep, I'm native. Fresh kill, you take your finger, you dip it in the blood, and you become one with the animal. It's a bonding experience. I can't explain that to normal people. You know. Did you have an opportunity to, like, most girls would be disgusted by that? I'm not like most girls. You had, like, a girl moment where. I was never meant to be a girl, I was supposed to be a boy. I've been a disappointment my whole life. I came out with a vagina, but I got treated like a boy. All the same. There's no pictures of me until I'm damn near six months old because I was wearing all boy clothes from the baby shower. My Aunt Lois had a picture. God bless her heart. My godmother, 90. She, on, she, she coming to the end. But she has a picture of my baby shower. All blue shit, Superman, Spider-Man, the Credible Hulk, all this shit, and one pink streamer. They bet wrong in a hoe. I've been disappointing people since the day I, I came into this world. What I'm supposed to do, change? So I got treated like a boy. I played with boy toys. I did all boy things. All my friends were boys. I didn't like girls. Girls... Play with a dog. The fuck out of here. Let's climb trees and shit. You know, I, that's always been me. Was your name supposed to be like Jackie or something? Or like, was it supposed to be a boy's name? Or I, they had a boy's name set up for me. But then my aunt named me when, that, when I came out a girl because they was not prepared. Jacqueline Suzette. My dad wanted to name me Susie after my aunt Susie, who was his favorite sister. His older sister, the matriarch of the family. God bless that. Yeah, so thank God. Because I'd have been a mean motherfucking Susie boy. But instead, I'm Jacqueline Suzette. And... French Creole roots, shit. 
What um? I want to lean off the, the rap group experience as far as the moment you were going to be a rapper. Yeah. And leaning into. Uh, I was never going to be Whitney Houston. What the point? What the fuck was the point in trying to be the greatest singer ever when the greatest singer ever already came? Well, wait a minute, honey. What did Uncle Robin say on the phone the other day? Uncle Robin. Oh, yeah, but what did, what did he say he wanted me to start doing again? Singing. No. What? He said, I want you to start spitting again. He said, these niggas don't know. You, you the finest female MC, period. Hands down. He said, you need to start spitting again. <laughs> so even in relation with like Big L, mm -hmm. uh, was he already rapping? Yeah. He was already the king when I met He was already about to be the king when I met him. I was 14. He was 17. I was with Akbar. And then from Akbar, after my daughter died, and then I came back to Islam and I went back to Holy Tabernacle. Before it was Holy Tabernacle, when they were still the Ansars, I got promised to Shia. Me and El was creeping that whole time. And a lot of time we spent in my car because I had Philadelphia, I had Pennsylvania tags. So wasn't nobody looking for him in a Philly car. Creeping. I was, I was the creep master. So at what point does the dominatrix lifestyle come in as far as a way to get money, a way to... You know, I was auditioning for Broadway plays. I was a single mom. My dad cut my baby daddy a check and told him his services were no longer needed. Thank you. And so, and that was that. Yeah, Donnie came over once when Giovanni was a baby. My dad called him downstairs, cut him a check for $500, told him to bounce, don't come back. <laughs> um, my dad was that guy. He took the check and never came back. I'd have asked for more. But as a single mom, I was raising my son with my parents. My father was the best male role model I could have asked for for my son, so I was good. Um, I worked really hard, worked really hard to build my career. And um, I would hustle money for pool on the side, but it wasn't enough. If I really wanted to break into the game, I had to be able to play the game. And in order to play the game, you got to pay your way in to the game. L taught me how to do that. But I needed capital. Takes money to make money. So it started out with phone sex. And I was a phone sex operator. Yeah, on some girl sex shit. Um, and I was good at it because I understood perverts because there were so many in my family. So I was making $20 an hour. Just 1993, 94. I'm making $20 an hour. But after the agency takes their fees and then I pay for my time slots to be on the phone to get the money, I was really only making like $11 an hour. Now, even in the early 90s, that still wasn't bad. 
but I, I'm just not that chick. So I started asking questions to the girls because there was phone sex lines in there on the one side. And then we had the dominatrix and then we just had the standard escorts. Um, so I pitched an idea to the owner to start sponsoring bachelor parties. I'm like, we can get the phone sex girls and we can get dominatrix girls and escorts put a package together. They have it all in one full service bachelor party. And then I'll call a caterer. Boom. We bring the bachelor party to you. You know how much fucking money that, that shit made? We was in Atlantic City four nights a week. I was doing five, I was managing five bachelor parties a night and I worked. Not only did I arrange the party, I worked the party. Kicking niggas asses, spanking them. Putting jello on them, spanking them. Man, I get to beat up niggas for free and get paid. I ain't gonna catch no case when I'm about to do to him. She let's go. Was it mainly Caucasians? It was all kinds. These perverts. I mean, 65% of my client base was Caucasian. Just to stand it. Look at the demographics in the United States. It makes sense. Um, but that other 35% that was color, oddly enough, they were stranger than the white boys. And then I got lost in that, that life. And then I, I became a dominatrix full time. I started out. I would imagine someone asked you to do that. Kind of pushed it. Well, I was dog training. He had a dog fetish. He wanted to be a dog and be treated like a dog. So I had his collar and his leash. And I had a chain for him. And I had a little paddle for him for when he made boo-boo on the carpet or if he made pee-pee on the carpet this motherfucker would piss on his own carpet <laughs> um, I'd walk him around the apartment and he would do tricks and he would beg for treats yeah he was a dog and um you know, sometimes people just evolve. And it just, it went in a bad direction. So the one day I came over, and I was doing, getting ready to do our normal session. And then I seen that he had the x lax on the table and the dog food. And he had the diaper. And I'm like, you add something new today? He said, yeah, yeah, you know, I just, I want to take it further. I want to take it further. I want to, I trust you. I know I can go there with you. So I crush up the X-Lax and the dog food and I put it in the bowl and he eat it. And he, I put the diaper on him and then I walk him. And then he make the boo-boo in the diaper. 
So I take the diaper off, then he pees all over the carpet, and I got to beat him. Bad dog, because he's pissing on the carpet. And then um, he wanted me to shove his face in the diaper so he could eat his own shit. And I looked at him, I said, you know you're human, right? Like you're a human being, dude. I'm not doing this to you. I'll give you an extra thousand. I don't know. Listen to me. You, you should get therapy. Not even you deserve this. Like this, I don't know what you're going. I'm not doing this to you. You're a fucking human being. And he said, please just make me eat it, mistress. Make me eat it. Make me eat it. Then he offered me 5000 extra. I was already getting paid 1200 for two hours. He wanted to put five on top of that. And he always tipped me out 500 I say, no. This pussy went and got 10 grand out of his bedroom. Please do it for me. You're the only one I trust. That pussy was about to pay me $11,1200 with a $500 tip to make him eat his own shit. Yeah, no, I didn't take the money. I left. I said to myself, if I take this money, my humanity is over. I'm not a human anymore. I'm an animal too. Because all money ain't fucking good money. Sucks, that sucks, though. Wow. Yeah, I always keep them at the bottom. Just thinking about it, I'm going to keep him out of the bottom. <laughs> wow. He shot his own cousin in the leg over socks. He was high as fuck? Yeah, they was high as, they was high as fuck on wet. Them niggas had been through like three or four dippers. He was zooted. They shot his cousin in the leg over socks. Zooted, tooted, and we had to call the doctor, and the doctor came, took the bullet out, patched him up. No. That gun had bodies on it. <laughs> yeah, we didn't do a lot of hospital trips. <laughs> niggas, niggas had doctors. That's the beautiful thing about living in the northern cities. Everybody works under the table. Yeah, you don't get too much of that out here. Nah. I, I, that's why anytime they ask me, I'm like, all my shit is done in cash. Like I, shit when my ex-boyfriend shot me and we went to the hospital together. I ain't tell them he was the one that shot me. I said I caught a stray and I did, but he was the one that shot the bullet. <laughs> You know. So I have a question then. Um, with what doing that dumb, you have the you understand the psychology behind a fetish. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, so you know probably what chemically. You know, what's the oh yeah, you know it's all dopamine. It's all dopamine induced and triggered. I watch it online. 
A lot of people online don't even realize they got online fetish. Being online has now become a fetish. Yeah. It qualifies. A senseless thing that brings nothing into your life, but yet you have to have it. Who the fuck falls in love with a foot? You know, it's a special kind of motherfucker that wants you to shave all your body hair off and wear children's underwear and dance for them with, pig, with a wig with pigtails and shit. So I was going to ask, if you ever have to get in costume too? Oh, absolutely. I was always in character. Um, we had this one client, wonderful old white man in South Jersey. He was a corporate executive at a pharmaceutical company, retired with um, Golden Parachute, divorced his wife of 35 years, cut everybody a check, told him to leave him alone. He went and got himself a halfway decent apartment. And um, he dedicated his retirement to um, getting um, escorts and dominatrix smoking crack. And so, you know, come over and we play the dress up. I'd have to do his makeup. He liked very, very, very goth vamp eye makeup. And very, very, very red lips. And I get him dressed in his, his undergarments and then put on his gown. And then I would put on a tux. And we would ballroom dance for a half an hour. That was his cardio. And then um, he would start smoking crack. And then I would start bringing the girls over. So I was, listen, no, listen to me. This guy, he started booking girls Thursday night at 6 p.m. And we had girls going out there in eight hour shifts until Monday morning. He was never alone. As soon as one girl was clocking out, the other girl was showing up. And all they had to do was light his crack pipe and, you know, help him play with himself in his women's clothes. I'll never forget there was this one time his his testicle got lodged because he had his thong on too tight. (laughs) And I had to call his doctor. <laughs> this old ass man with his balls stuck inside him because his drawers is too tight. <laughs> you know, a lot of times it'd be hard not to laugh, you know. The shit that these motherfuckers do is so goddamn ridiculous, you know. You try not to laugh like, motherfucker, are you serious? You know, but well, you're paying me. So what got you out of that lifestyle making what it be so lucrative? I had a bad week. I evolve real fast in the life, like I do with anything. Like anything that I do, I'm gonna be amazing at it. Like I'm gonna be the best that ever did it. That's just my personal standard. So when I came into the game, I knew I wanted to be the top dominatrix in the city, or at least in the top three. And for a black girl, 
that in the early 90s, that was hard to accomplish because a lot of them white men didn't trust dealing with black girls because of black rage and they were afraid of getting blackmailed. So I became a very trusted worker. Three fifty an hour. Nineteen ninety fucking four. Ninety five. I was making three fifty an hour. I was making ten racks a week. And then when I started going back to doing bachelor parties again, and then taking private clients because my private when I when I went through the agency I was three fifty an hour. When I went private, I was a thousand an hour because I'm assuming more risk. And I had a driver. He was my driver and my bodyguard. His name is Mike. I call him Mickey. He calls me Asia. That was my mistress name, Mistress Asia. Ain't that odd that I chose that name? My dead daughter's name is Nia Asia. So that's interesting. You, you said you, you said there was a week that was pretty bad that got you out of that lifestyle. Because the money's good. Yeah. And it was enough just for you to say I'm done? I paid him $200 a night. He worked for me six days a week. And I tipped him out. That man was making $1,000 a week off of me alone. And I didn't mind when he worked with other girls. He's actually very cool with that prostitute that I was telling you about. The Brian McKnight prostitute. She still fucking, she still pissed at him because he loves me more. <laughs> uh. She sold her pussy and all I did was, was flash mine. And I made more money than her. She was always mad. I told her, this is, this is the sexiest thing you could ever have. You learn how to pimp this. You keep your pussy to yourself. But I forgot about that night. When we went in that bachelor party, the pussies tried to fucking short me. I ran out to the car. All I had on was a thong and a bikini top and five inch stiletto wedges. Five inch. And I'm in a, essentially in a bikini. I goes out to the car, get the back. I already had the gun in my bag and Mickey had my bag. I said, I'm gonna just start hitting these motherfuckers and if anybody tries to touch me, shoot them. <laughs> Yo, when I came in that fucking party and I took that shit, I said, what That nigga fucking came off his feet. Yo, here's your money, now just go. <laughs> How the fuck do you argue with a crazy black bitch in a bikini fucking hitting niggas with a fucking bat? With a big ass fucking baboon with a gun in his hand ready to shoot anybody that try to touch it. I've always been this. So. That last week, 
three things happened. We kept getting this guy. The agencies was calling each other and alerting each other. This guy was strange. He would just call and call and call and call and call until they sent someone out. But the last two girls that went out never came back to work. I drew his call one night because he stopped calling for escorts and he started calling for dominatrix calls. And he refused to come on site to the dungeon. He insisted on a home experience paying double. See, we could take private calls, but you got to pay. And you got to pay for potential hazard pay. So that call was five grand for an hour. Five grand for an hour. So me and Mickey went. He wouldn't answer the door the first time. He called back four hours later. I had already let Mickey go for the night. I was just going to be manning the phones and making sure all the girls made it back in safe. And the call came up again. And all our other girls that were doing dominatrix services was booked up for the night. I called the owner and told the owner, I think we need to flag this guy. He said, we're about to come up short on one of those bachelor parties. One of the girls lost the bag. You got to take that call. I'm like, what do you mean? I got to take that call. You're the, only, you're the only one that's left. Everybody else is booked. It's $5,000. Take the call. I'm like, I'm telling you, I think we need to flag this guy. And I already sent Mickey home. He looked at me. He said, Asia, you have a gun. I mean, you want your job, don't you? So I went back out at 3.30 a.m. in the fucking morning. And I had a bad feeling about this dude. I had my gun. I was wearing my, uh, these patent leather thigh-high boots and I had my gun in inside my boot. Safety off. One in the chamber. We at the door. He's inside, I'm on the other side of the threshold. Something started whispering in my ear and said, do not cross that threshold because you will not come back out. So, he keeps insisting that I hurry up and come inside and go downstairs to the basement because he got it all set up and I'm going to love it and I'm going to want to rent his space out and I'm going to want to work there and he has food and wine and grapes and all of it. Like he's selling it so hard. I haven't even made it across the threshold. I step back. And I said, I think you don't understand what this is. I'm the boss. 
You don't tell me where I'm going or when I'm going. And then I put my hand inside my boot and I grabbed for my gun and I guess he noticed it. And he said, are you armed? And I said, are you scared? I don't think this is gonna be a good fit. I said, then pay my $500 cancellation fee right now and I'll go. You haven't even come inside. I'll give you a $500 cancellation fee, you just gotta come inside. I said, no. Once again, I don't think you understand how this motherfucking shit goes. And then I pulled the gun out my boot. And I got it sitting on my leg. Like I'm tapping it on my thigh while I'm standing there. I said, you hand me my $500 cancellation fee. He said, I want to give it to you, but you have to come inside. And I took the gun and I went like this. And I went like this. And I said, fuck it. I make thousands, I don't need 500. And I walked off and I got into the car and I drove away and he ran out as I was pulling off and was standing on the lawn with his hands up in the air. Like, why? The next morning, there was a woman found dead. She was a dominatrix. She was cut up. Wrapped in plastic, they found pieces of her floating in the Delaware River. It was the next girl that came to his house. They had him, they finally caught him and arrested him. He had been cutting up bitches all up and down the eastern seaboard for two months. So I evaded a serial killer. That was the first thing that week. Then I had to work a double at the Voyeur Club where the dungeon was. I had to manage the whole thing and this is a very, very, very elaborate operation. You walk in the door, you got a midget, a midget fuck show. Literally, midgets having hardcore, raw, rough sex the second you walk in the door. I mean, you don't know, like, how do you prepare for that? The midgets dressed in like patent leather with pussy out fucking shit. This little fucking midget dude with the chaps on and his ass out and, and midgets. <laughs> Biting each other and shit. Fucking midgets. The main chick that worked for us, we called her It. That was her name. It. And um, it was kind of fucked up that one Halloween. No, because it was a Michael Jackson themed sex party. And so they had it in a bondage, you know, chained up and shit with a mask on. And they had objects for you to hit her with. And they were playing Michael Jackson beat it. Well, her name was It, and they, you were supposed to beat her, so beat It, and they had my, beat It, 
beat ass. Motherfuckers just beating the shit out of this fucking midget. She's, ah! That's how you walk in. Welcome to Wonderland. And then there's the main voyeur floor where the live sex shows happened. And the audience, you know, you have to pay, you know, for your seating area. Um, the higher up you went, because there was a balcony, the balcony was always the most expensive. We charged $2,000 for the night for balcony seats. Well, no, because now you get a bird's eye view and you're allowed to film. Only in the balcony. So you pay $2,000 for the night. So... It was a three-way gangbang with three guys. And that was, the main, that was the show on the main floor. The guy that was getting fucked was one of the guys that raped me in junior high school. So now I'm sitting here watching the guy who gang raped me get gang raped for pay. And this is at my work. That's a fucking head trip. I was drinking drink, um, Jameson from the bottle that night. Because I'm like, and you raped me for free? And you get paid? So that was number two. Thursday, all hell broke loose. The top dominatrix. She trained me. Excellent. I cannot say her name because I love her children. <clears throat> See, her number one client and her had fallen in love. And so he built a dungeon in his house. So she could have an office there and she never had to leave. He put her name on the deed. They were going to get married. But see, the problems with those kind of relationships is they always go too far. They were heavy into autoerotic asphyxiation. Like, she was a pro at it. She taught me. She snapped his neck and killed him while they were fucking. I'm going to try to explain this as best as I can. They were into this weird erotic, satanic Santa thing. So they had a Christmas tree up and it had like pieces of shit on it, monkey balls and like weird anal stuff. And um, you know, the star, the angel at the top, it was the devil fucking an angel. That was the tree topper. And um, she was dressed up like some kind of insane elf with the crotch out. 
And he was in the Santa diaper hat. And they had a wall mount. So he was up on the wall in, you know, back against the wall. She had rigged the Christmas lights up so it could wrap around his neck. And then she had it levered so she could pull it and it would snatch his neck. So she would climb on top of him and be riding him on the wall and be yanking at the same time and choking him. I mean, this shit was brilliant. She's fucking the shit out of this dude and choking him off. I don't know what happened. She went too far. Snapped his neck clean. She called us. We came to come get her, come clean up the scene. And she, she refused to leave. I said, we got to go before his body temp starts changing and call 911. We got to get you the fuck out of here. I'm not going anywhere. It's my house. Y'all want some coffee? She went upstairs and made coffee. I'm looking at old boy. Like, does this bitch realize this is a dead body hanging here on this wall and she killed him? This could go for first degree manslaughter. Maybe she killed him for the will. Her name just went on. Like, why? She not getting that we need to go? While she was making us coffee upstairs and we're trying to figure out what we got to say to get her the fuck out of the door, she called fucking 911 and told him to come get him and bring a wagon. Now it's too late. I ain't do nothing wrong. Look at the smile on his face. She gets arrested for second degree murder and charged with first degree manslaughter as well and a handful of other charges. I quit. <laughs> I'm done. My mentor's fitting to go to jail for killing her boyfriend, which she was happy to do because he died with a smile on his face. I evaded a serial killer by the hands on my chinny chin chin, and I watched my rapist get raped for, for, for fucking money at my job, and I had to stay and watch because it was my job. That was my last week in the life. <laughs> Want to know how that case turned out for her, though? She drew the wrong judge. He was a client. It could have went smooth. It could have went real smooth. He was one of our top clients. This motherfucker liked to wear bra and panties up underneath his robe with nipple clamps and shit while he's sitting on the bench judging motherfuckers like he's a real whole weirdo. Circuit court judge, you know who the fuck you are. If I walk into his courtroom now, whoever's on trial is getting all charges dismissed. Just if I wink. <laughs> so, could have went sweet. She ended up getting 15 years.
Ask me how. I don't fucking understand why we got to do this. Why? We can just do it like we always do. We can go into the back. We can just go into the back and work it out. You know this shit is a farce. Now, meanwhile, the jury has seen pictures of the crime scene. Satanic Santa shit everywhere. A diaper under the tree filled with human feces. For ambiance. She looks like an insane elf. Red lipstick smeared up the side of her face. Also, look whatever happened to baby Jane. These are the pictures that the jury's seeing. And this poor old white man. Like this. With a smile, tongue. Hanging from a wall. I don't understand what the fuck is your problem. This is the best night of his goddamn life. We should be celebrating him. How many people get to die doing what they love? She's yelling this at the jury and threatening to expose the judge as a client. Ten years. Oh, well, don't be a pussy about it. Fine, bitch. Fifteen. <laughs> she just got out two years ago. The world has changed a lot since she's been away. She ran into some trouble while she was in jail and had to do some more time. Yeah. It made me start questioning humanity and my humanity. When I first got into dominatrix, it was for the money. It became cathartic for me. I got to work out a lot of my demons on these sickos. But then I started thinking and seeing everybody and everybody just looked like fucking sickos. What the fuck you into, you know? Fuck going on a date. I'm looking for your pervert. And a lot of times I found it. There's a line, a psychological line you have to cross in order to fully commit to that life. You have to be able to stop seeing human beings as human beings. They have to become objects or animals or just money. Yeah. I had to get away from that shit. But I made enough money to finance me and to bankroll me so that I could spend more time focusing on my music. Truth is, in those four years that I was in the life on and off, I made three quarters of a million dollars cash. Um, I gave 250 of it to my mom and my dad for my son. Yeah, I couldn't take him, I couldn't drag him through all the shit that I was fucking into, shit. It was bad enough when we got shot, when a car got shot when he was a baby. We was up um, Erie, and our, um, Erie, Erie and Germantown Avenue right there, Broad and Erie. 
I was dating not-so-nice guy. People knew that I was his woman. Some of his rivals bumped in. They wanted to send a message. So they started shooting up my car. And my son was in a car seat. A bullet literally just missed Giovanni's car seat while I'm getting cheesesteaks. So I really didn't feel comfortable having my son in the street with me like that. Because I realized I'm a target all the time. Um, so you traded, you got out of that life and, and music. Yeah. The next thing, yeah. I'm just I got a job at Wawa. Uh -oh. And I started working a square job for nine fifty an hour. You know how fucking humiliating that was? Those paychecks? I'm working doubles and after taxes. I'm lucky if I get to keep 500. I was used to making that in an hour. You know how fucking humiliating that is? Then the bitches started talking shit. Power 99 on, because I, I, worked, I worked third shift because it paid the most. So, girls talking, oh, such, such. On the radio. Oh, I wonder what they like. Oh, he all right. Oh, I wonder what she all right. Oh, well, he all right. She all right. You don't know all these people. I really do. No, no, you don't. Because if you knew all these people, you wouldn't be here working with us. And I was like, you know what? Great point. I had signed up for a double shift. Because I was trying to cake up fast. I had three jobs. I was working at Wawa, I was working at Victoria's Secret, and I was working at Hex all at the same time. So I was working 90 hours a week because I was trying to find a way to at least be getting legally legit a G a week after taxes, which wasn't bad money back in the 90s. A G a week in the 90s now is like three to four Gs a week. So, I got all these hours. I'm working 90 hours. Just so I could clear 1,200 in a week? And I'm used to doing that in a half a day? Couldn't gamble no more because I was a gambling addict. I just bought a bunch of new clothes. Got, um... I bought a microphone, I bought an MP for my boyfriend because he was making beats. So I only had like $65 in my account. So I, I started booking myself for doubles to try to make up for the money that I just spent. Um, so I quit. <laughs> oh, what are you gonna do, my manager? You gonna run off and go, so you can go be Whitney Houston? I said, no. I'm going to go be me. I said, the next time I see you, I'm going to come back here and you're going to make my sandwiches. A year later, I pulled up wearing a chinchilla coat and a brand new ML500 sports edition, brand new off a lot, Mercedes Benz. It was an Eagles game coming on. I came to pick up hoagies for me and my dad, chips and cream soda. I walks in, 
This was like right after we had done the Chris Rock show. And everybody was talking about it. And then I got, you know, I got the best man and all of that. I walks in. All the girls, it's Jacqueline, oh my God, I saw you in the What do you need, what do you need, what do you need? So the manager come out and he said, girls, I'm taking this lady's order. And he made my fucking sandwiches. And he said, I never made it. I never met anybody that made me eat my words. He said, you look fabulous on the Chris Rock show. I was proud to tell everybody you used to be my star employee. See, whatever I do, I'm amazing at it. At the Wawa that I worked at, I ran the coffee center and I did, I, I did all of the prep for all the sandwiches. I made the fastest hoagies and I had the most popping coffee center when everyone would come in. Cause see, I got OCD, so I don't like motherfuckers coming in dirty and up my shit and I gotta keep cleaning after motherfuckers, cleaning after motherfuckers. So you know what I did? I served everyone their coffee. They would come in, they would put what they wanted in their cup and then they come by and I pour. I pour. And my station stayed clean and it moved fast and efficiently. And the register went like clockwork. Hot coffee and a butter roll, hot coffee and a butter roll. I used to run through about 150 of those in about 25 minutes. I ran my shit so efficiently, it didn't make any sense. They wanted me to do management. They wanted to train me for management for the store. I just do great at whatever I do. That's how my daddy raised me. But yeah, you made my sandwiches. And then that's right, that's when the roots in me. Yeah, what was the introduction as far as your, what would you say is your kickoff into the music business? Like, Interning at Philadelphia International for my Uncle Kenny Gamble. I grew up with Harold Melvin and the Blue Notes. I grew up around Patti LaBelle. I watched Phyllis Hyman record Meet Me on the Fucking Moon. I've been around greatness my whole life in one way or the other. You don't take that back as far as interning? I mean, the interning was the interning. But because of that internship, it put me in league with Gerald Levert at 15. And he was my mentor and writer. And then later he became my lover and we talked about getting married and then he dropped dead. It's so funny when I watch all of these bitches argue about who Gerald Levert loved the most. Like, apparently Kim Whitley and Sherry Shepard got issue with Monique over Gerald Levert. Gerald Levert ain't getting no fuck about none of y'all bitches. And least of all, Mickey Howard. He loved you, Mickey, but Mickey, he told me you was fucking clingy. You was clingy as shit. And now Candy Burris want to talk about how she was with Gerald Levert. Everybody wants to be with Gerald, even Deanna Williams, Kenny Gamble, baby mom. You still mad. You still big mad that he loved me. I was going to head up his back line. His last album, he had finally gotten out of hock with the company and they was actually going to have to pay him for it and own his own masters. He dropped dead before it was released. Anybody who doesn't believe it, you can call down to the Palm now. When I had to cancel our dinner reservations when he was going to publicly propose to me in Philadelphia at the Palm. I had to cancel those, uh, those dinner plans two days after he died. I forgot. 
I found out that Gerald was dead after doing a Nina Simone tribute concert with Forrest and Belial in New York. And I was on my way back to Philly and I was on the train and people started calling me and they started saying Gerald is dead. And I said, you a motherfucking lie. And then I called Big Joe. I called him Big Baby, his personal bodyguard. And I say, say it ain't so, Joe. He said, I can't tell you that, baby girl, because it is. His funeral was fucking heartbreaking. It was fucking heartbreaking. And I sit here and I listen to all these bitches, all these fucking bitches. Did I finally erase it? I used to have his number in my phone. I think I finally erased it. I kept Gerald's number in my phone for many years and sometimes I would call it and one time I called and a woman answered and I said, did you know that this was Gerald Avert's phone number? And she said, no. I said, how lucky for you. That man loved me. And when he died, I truly felt alone in this business because he was the only, he was the only one. that protected me from the, from the monsters and from the wolves. And, and Gerald died and I was on my own in the game. Were you recording first going shows and touring at the time? Ghostwriting for him. Me and Scott Storch grew up ghostwriting together. For, uh, that's how me and Scott got together. Scott's a part of that. I mean, he's something. I know he like used pussy. He like everything brand new, but pussy. That nigga got to spend, he'll spend, just so he can be the first one that walked into a restaurant, he'll spend big bread. But the pussy got to be ran through. We got into an argument one time, me and Scott, and he said to me, I don't fucking know why you don't want to be with me. I said, because I consider it an insult. And he said, you consider me being with you an insult? I said, yeah, because you only fuck with whores. I ain't a whore. Fuck you, Jag. No, I won't fuck you, bitch. I'll never forget when that nigga was running around with clip-on earrings, four-carat clip-on earrings, because he was too lazy to get his ears pierced. Then he started dating the Heather Hunter and, and, I, and got mad at me. Cause I laughed at him when, when I told him, I, cause I said to him, I was like, you know that bitch only, all she gonna do is bring her work home with her. He said, what? I said, all that bitch gonna do is bring her work home with her. And then he came in the house and seen her fucking three dudes. <laughs> well, you wanted a porn star. <laughs> that was after fucking Paris Hilton. Fucking scammed him into spending $40 million on her. That bitch was worth more money than him. Why was you spending all your bread? Because I, I walked up to her. The night that Suge Knight got shot. And I walked up to her in the bathroom. We was all having dinner in Nobu. Right there in the Shore Club on Collins. And I walked up to her in the bathroom. And I said, she said, what are you doing? I said, I just want to see if it's true. She said, what's true? I said, everybody say you, you smell like dirty bed sheets. They right. You smell stale. 
You know, like you've been fucked through or something. You know, I don't care what you got to say, you fucking nigger bitch. I'm with Scott, and I don't care if you don't like it. I said, you know, if I didn't want to get arrested. I said, I don't want to get arrested. I said, but I'm, I'm about to choke the fuck out of you. Call me a nigger one more time, bitch. Pop, 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 pop. This bitch opens up the bathroom door, looks out, comes back in, messes up her hair, and then runs out screaming, hoping to get pictures taken of her by the paparazzi. I fucking lie to you not. This is how fucking fucked off Paris Hilton is. She made it out to the cameras before they rolled Suge Knight out. And he's the one that got shot. Ah! Ain't nobody else running. This bitch was the only one running looking for a camera. And she lucky them pops came because I was about to take her ass in that stall and work her up. Get no fuck, I'll fuck you up in no boo. And then saved by the shots. And then the next thing you know, I come out, I'm standing right there because, the, you know, the, the dining hall is right there. And then there's the long corridor and then you walk down and then the entrance out in the Collins. The bathrooms is right there along that walkway. So that's when I seen him rolling sugar. And sugar was on his stomach and his ass was up and there's this big red spot. I said, God damn, sugar, they shot you in the ass. <laughs> I said, God damn it. Man, I'm walking you. I'm telling you, it was like a scene from The Wizard of Oz. Ding dong, the wicked shit gets said. Hey, hey, hey. Yeah, you hear shot? Shit, I got shot ass. Everybody was so excited. I've never seen people so happy to see somebody get shot before. But MTV video, video Music Award time in Miami back then, it was always some wild shit. But yeah, Paris Hill made it to the camera for sure, did. And he the one that got shot. Fuck you, Paris Hilton. And I wish you and your whack-ass mama would stop lying. You know y'all the ones who taught the Kardashians how to do the mother-daughter sex tape. You know they got it from you. Kim was your assistant. Them Kardashian bitches ain't got an original head. Thought in their head. Paris made that shit up. The first time I seen her sex tape, Scott played it in the studio on the big screen. It was like, that's going to be my girlfriend. And he, and, she, and he did. I give him that. A night in Paris. <laughs> Only cost you $40 million in your dignity. <laughs> But you know what? I can't hate because to be able to say that you got $40 million to throw away on a rich bitch, you made that $40 million. Facts. I just wouldn't have wasted it on that whore. As you were ghostwriting uh, LaBert, Scott, how did you get into a situation where you're taking part of the roots? Like, how I never wanted to be part of the roots. I wanted to build Black Lily. Black Lily was an entity of the roots crew. More importantly than that, I wanted to work with Richard Nichols. And the only way you get to work with Richard Nichols is if you're a part of Watch Your Bag Management. It was a cat. They needed me for street cred because Malik wasn't around anymore. 
Malik was done with the shenanigans. He was with them until the day he died. How many years prior? Uh, From the beginning. Without Malik B, there is no Grammy. Without Malik B, there is no record deal. Tariq was a fledgling writer. Malik never ran out of words. Imagine what that's like. You're struggling. Four, five days to get 16 bars and this nigga wakes up from a nod on, on pancake and syrup and come out and fucking spit 36 and go back to sleep. I don't know. I guess that's how you justified stealing his lyrics so you could be called one of the greatest rappers. He didn't remember. He, he said him. <laughs> he was so high sometimes. It was an all-women's event, and I knew if I put that event on my back and I pushed every last one of them motherfuckers that was in that show. See, the thing with Black Lily was it was everybody against Jag. Because nobody wanted to perform after me. Nobody wanted to perform after me. You know how many gigs I didn't get as an opening act because the headliner was afraid to go on after me? Over a thousand. I've counted in 20 years. A thousand, no, you can't be on this tour because you terrify the motherfucker who's headlining. Imagine that. I don't give a fuck when I go on first or last. It's going to be the same show. You strive to be the best, though. I strive to be the best me. I don't give no fuck about everybody else. Like, I think that's the one thing that I love about Charleston. I'm so worried about what the fuck I'm doing. I don't even see who's hating on me. I'm worried about my business. You should be worried about yours. But they all try to compete with me. And they get mad because I don't compete with anybody but myself. How old are you at this time? 22. Five years after the last gang rape. A year and a half out of the life. With a six-year-old kid and no father. And yet, with all of that working against me, I still never made anything less than $2,000 a week. My mom had a box, a shoe box in her closet filled with cash, 50s and 100s. It was, it was for my lawyer just in case I got booked. I kept $50,000 in that box at all time. And if she needed anything, she'd just go get it out the box. And then I would replace it. 
Imagine what it's like to be 19 years old and your mom say, well, I'm coming up a little short on the mortgage and I need a new washer and dryer. Can I get it out the box? Just go get it out the box, mom. And then you come back and the box is full again. My mom had a box with $50,000 in it for 10 years. And the box always had $50,000, no matter how many times she went in it. At your highest, uh, what would you say you brought in or you had on you a year, uh, your highest grossing year? Legal or otherwise? Otherwise. Otherwise money? Street money? I make a half a million a year easy. If I'm really pushing it, I can do 1.3. But it's all liquid, it's all cash, and I can't. So I can, all I can do is move it around and manipulate it. I mean, the truth is, is if I wanted to right now, I can make a phone call and have a million dollars cash here in four days. I don't worry about money because I am the money. Money chase me. I don't chase it. My husband would get mad at me. We need this. We need that. We need this. Then go make some money. What do you mean just go make some money? Let me show you how it's done. Send me a thousand. When? Tomorrow? One o'clock? All right. How many times have you seen me do that, honey? Honey, how many times have you seen me just pick up the phone and tell somebody to give me fucking money? <laughs> my husband be getting mad because every time we be coming up short and I won't go get no money and I can want to know why because if we everything we say we are we should be able to survive without fucking money that's the baddest motherfucker in the room that can live a five star life and you wouldn't even know it Shout out real street stars, nigga. Moolah. Hey.